Would you please turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 5? If you're going to use the Bibles in front of you there, it's on page 523. Also, we'll project the words um, if you just want to follow along that way too. Uh, We're doing a sermon series right now that we're calling Too Good to Miss, which uh, is where we're going backwards in the lectionary, and you all are indulging me so that I can preach on some of the texts that I missed while I was on sabbatical this summer. Uh, because they were just too good to miss, so we have to go back to them. Um, So here we are, not missing those texts together. Isn't that wonderful? This morning, we're looking at 2 Kings chapter 5, verses 1 through 16. Like I said earlier, uh, this is the story of Naaman. Naaman was a commander in the Assyrian or the Syrian army, uh, the army of Aram. And Naaman and his army, they were enemies of Israel. And they were responsible for all kinds of battles and wars and horrible things against all kinds of people, including the Israelites, uh, including God's people. So Naaman was, was not a friend of God, not a friend of God's people, but suddenly in this story, he finds himself really in need of some help, um, and so he asks for it. Let's have a read 2 Kings 5, verses 1 through 16. Listen to God's word. Now Naaman was a commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. Now bands of raiders from Aram had gone out and had taken captive a young girl from Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, If only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went to his master, the king, and told him what the girl from Israel had said. By all means, go, the king of Aram replied. I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman left, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten sets of clothing. The letter that he took to the king of Israel read, With this letter I am sending my servant Naaman to you so that you may cure him of his leprosy. As soon as the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his robes and said, Am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? See how he was trying to pick a quarrel with me. When Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, He sent him this message. Why have you torn your robes? Have the man come to me, and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman went with his horses and his chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Elisha sent a messenger to say to him, Go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan, and your flesh will be restored, and you will be cleansed. But Naaman went away angry and said, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call in the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? So he turned and went off in a rage. Naaman's servants went to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more, then, when he tells you, 
wash and be cleansed. So Naaman went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times, as the man of God had told him. And his flesh was restored and became clean like that of a young boy. Then Naaman and all his attendants went back to the man of God, to Elisha, and stood before him and said, Now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel, so please accept a gift from your servant. But Elisha answered, As surely as the Lord lives, whom I serve, I will not accept a thing. And even though Naaman urged him, he refused. This is the word of the Lord. So we don't know a ton about this Naaman guy. In the Bible, he's only mentioned here, and then uh, Jesus actually mentions him very briefly in uh, the Gospel of Luke. But this is Naaman's 15 minutes of fame. 15 minutes or 15 seconds? Minutes? Okay, well, he gets 15 minutes. I just had this like, what, which one is it? Okay, this is his 15 minutes of fame. So, um, we know from the text that Naaman was the commander of the army of the king of Aram, which means that he was the general of the Syrian army. And the Syrian army was the most aggressive, powerful army in all the world. So Naaman was a big deal. We know that from the text. We also know that Naaman had a lot of wealth at his disposal. He offered to pay Elisha 750 pounds of silver and 150 pounds of gold, and 10 sets of clothing, just for fashion week, because he had all of this stuff, and he was willing to give it away to Elisha. Now, I read a couple of commentators who found these, these numbers a little bit confusing because, these commentators say, Naaman was probably wealthy, but it's hard to believe that he was that wealthy. Like, that is a ridiculous amount of money. So the question is, where did Naaman come up with a Warren Buffett amount of money? So their best guess, the best guess of these scholars, isn't that Naaman had earned all of this money. It was much more, uh, they're guessing, that Naaman was so beloved, and he was so important, and he was so well-connected that when he got sick, a whole league of wealthy people that he knew, a whole league of wealthy people that he was connected to, helped him out, gave him all this money, and said, here, do whatever you have to do, go get healthy. So Naaman had very good friends in very high places. People loved this guy. He was the people's champion. Uh, he had all kinds of connections. He was highly sought, sought after. He had spent his life working in the in inner circles of the wealthy aristocracy and the power mongers and the culture makers, and he had made a place for himself there. Everybody looked up to him, and everybody gave him what he wanted, and everything was going perfectly for Naaman, and one day he woke up with leprosy. And the bottom fell out. Leprosy in ancient times was a terrible disease, and it would start, and we assume it did with Naaman too, it would start with just a spot, and then that spot would slowly spread over someone's entire body, and then infections would develop, and eventually leprosy would lead to death. And that's tragic enough on its own, but there was a whole other dimension of tragedy here for Naaman, because leprosy 
was the disease of an outcast. Not only were lepers outcasts because their disease was contagious, like they had to be put into quarantine, but also the disease would so distort a person's body that would, they would become difficult to look at. Like, it was uncomfortable to be in a room with someone who had leprosy just because it was hard to be in that room with them. Like, in polite company, lepers were not welcome in society. It was just too offensive to every sense to be in the same room as them. So in pretty much every situation, lepers were exiled from their communities and exiled from their families and exiled from their lives and forced to live out their days dying on the fringes of society. Do you see the irony here, right? What happens when one of the world's greatest insiders contracts the disease of an outcast? So Naaman isn't just being attacked physically by this disease. It wasn't just his body that was being threatened. His pride was under attack, and his status was under attack, and his identity was under attack. Nobody was more connected. Nobody was more esteemed. Nobody was better resourced. Nobody was more admired. But now, with this little spot on the corner of his wrist, all of that was going away for Naaman. So Naaman, we assume, consulted all the physicians and they had nothing for him. And Naaman, we assume, sacrificed to all the gods and that led to nothing. He does everything in his power and beyond to make himself whole again, but he comes up empty. And then in verse 3, one more little idea makes its way to Naaman. And notice the source of the idea. There's a young enslaved girl. And a number of years back, this, this young enslaved girl was taken as a slave by one of Naaman's armies. And this young enslaved girl was currently serving Naaman's wife. And she tells Naaman's wife, you know, there's this prophet back in my home country, and I'm almost sure that the prophet could heal Naaman of his leprosy. Again, do you see the irony? Naaman is the insider's insider. He is connected and esteemed more than anybody else in the world, and he comes up empty. But then this young enslaved girl who is nobody to him, who is nothing to him, she comes along and she's like, eh, I know a guy. <laughs> right? <laughs> Come on, Nathan, it's not what you know, it's who you know. I know a guy. So prior to this moment, Naaman probably didn't even know that this little girl even existed. She was nameless and disposable in his world. But he is so desperate that he'll try literally anything and he'll listen to literally anybody. So he follows up on this tip from this young girl and he reaches out. But Naaman does it in his way. Here's what I mean by that. If you wanted to get a hold of me, you would look up my phone number. In the, it's listed in the church directory. It's on Breeze. You would look it up, and you would call me, and we would talk. That's how you would get a hold of me. But if you were Naaman, and you wanted to get a hold of me, you would call the President of the United States of America, 
and you'd be like, hey, Joe, how's it going? How's Jill? How are things? Things good? Did you get the gift basket I sent you at Camp David? Fantastic. I have a, I have a favor I want to I run by you. There's this guy in Grand Rapids. His name is Stefan, and I'd, I'd really like to see him. I need to see him right away. You, if you were naming, you would contact Joe Biden, and then Joe Biden would contact my boss, which I guess is Jamie Reynolds, who would get the... Jamie would get a call from Joe Biden, and she'd be terribly confused about why the president was calling her, and maybe she'd tear her robes too, and she'd be like, well, apparently, uh, she'd, she'd text me, because that's how we talk, and she'd be like, Naaman wants to see you? That's how Naaman does this. He contacts the king of Aram, who contacts the king of Israel, who freaks out, who tears his robes, thinking that these two nations are headed for war, and the message gets lost along the way. That's the world that Naaman lives in. When the fact is, had he gone on his haunches and said to that young girl, could you take me there? She said, yeah. Here's the biggest mistake that Naaman made. He assumed that the God of Israel and the prophet of Israel viewed the world the same way he did. Naaman saw the world as a caste system. He saw the world as a hierarchy. He saw a segregated world in which people were rightly um, ranked from the best and the smartest and the wealthiest to the worst and the most pathetic and the poorest. And in Naaman's world, whenever you needed something to happen, whenever you needed something to change, you would run it up the ladder, right? That's the way things get done. You run it up the ladder. You call in your favors. You reach out to the most powerful people in your life because it's those powerful people who get things done. You level up. So when a young enslaved girl approaches him, and notice that's, those are three strikes, right? A young enslaved girl approaches him and comes up with this idea of how he can be healed. He doesn't approach the girl and say, can you take me there? No, no, no. She's a slave. He disdains her. That's not how you get things done. That's beneath him. He calls his king who calls another king, who's supposed to call a prophet, and then they're going to schedule a big important meeting where millions of dollars will exchange hands and the balance of global power will shift. That's how this stuff happens. But all he needed to do was follow a little girl. Naaman's biggest mistake was that he assumed the God of Israel viewed the world the same way he did. He thought that the God of Israel was like all of the other gods, at the top of the hierarchy, giving his favor and his grace to those who most deserve it, who are most capable, who are most wealthy, who are most wonderful. Naaman did not understand the first thing about our God. And so, even when it came time for Naaman to do the thing that Elisha told him to do in order to be healed, what does he say? No, I'm not going to do that. Why? 
Anybody can wash in that disgusting water. Anybody can do that. Naaman wanted to do some great thing. He wanted to run it up the ladder. He wanted to be super important. The deliverance that was being offered to him didn't reflect the overall impressiveness that he had to contribute. Naaman didn't understand the first thing about our God. God's grace does not trickle down the social hierarchy. That's not how it works. First blessing the ultra-wealthy and the ultra-connected and the ultra-successful, that's not how it works. God's grace does not even trickle down the religious hierarchy. You don't need me. You know that, right? Like, I'm being 100% serious. God's grace does not trickle down the religious hierarchy. In fact, there is no religious hierarchy. Not, not here. God's grace does not trickle down first to the religious elite and then to the ultra-obedient and to the ultra-orthodox and to the ultra-confessional and to the theological aristocracy with all of the back padding. That's not how it works. If anything, actually, it's the opposite of that. If anything, God's grace comes up to us from below, from places and people and situations that we never would have imagined. If anything, it's the opposite. Think about it. Who are the ones who finally convinced Nathan, uh, Naaman to jump in the Jordan River? The people he had enslaved. It's mind-blowing. This is not a coincidence, folks. This is how the gospel works. I read a theologian a few weeks ago who was pointing out how many times in Scripture it happens that there's somebody who's relatively well-off and then they hit a crisis, and then their salvation or their deliverance lies below them on the social ladder. I think there's literally dozens, if not hundreds, of examples of this in Scripture. Here's three or four. The prodigal son becomes desperate enough to join his father's hired hands, right? But then his ultra-holy brother can't join the party unless he is willing to accept his failure of a young brother. And so the, the, the prodigal son, the naughty boy, is willing to go, below, to go the social rung below, but the older brother, who's super religious, isn't. And he's stuck outside the party at the end. There's another place in Scripture. There's a rich young man who approaches Jesus, and he, and he says, hey, Jesus, guess what? I'm really good at all the stuff. I have followed all the laws. I followed all the commandments. I'm really, really good. Jesus is like, that's great. And the guy is like, so what should I do now? And Jesus is like, give away all of your things. And he goes, I can't. Even Peter, the disciple Peter, maybe you know the story of Peter. 
Jesus has been taken away. He's been arrested. He's about to be crucified. And Peter's, his whole world is falling apart. And somebody comes up to him and says, hey, aren't you with the Jesus guy? Aren't you part of his thing? Like, you have his accent. You're, you're following that guy. And three times, Peter says, no, I don't know the guy. No, I don't know the guy. I promise, I don't know the guy. Why? He's, it's peer pressure, Right? He didn't want to fall down the social hierarchy. He didn't want people looking down his nose at him. He, didn't, he wanted to look good in the eyes of others. But guess what? And Peter learned this the hard way. We all learned this hard, the hard way. The path is downward, not upward. Oh. It's a hard pill. The path is downward, not upward. We are always aiming for some great thing. Always. Even when it comes to our faith. We're aiming for some great thing. We put pressure on ourselves to to be flawless, to look flawless, to at least be perceived as flawless. Even in our, uh, our, our walk with Christ, like we put this pressure on ourselves to have this flawless faith to, have, to believe beyond the shadow of a doubt, right? Believe beyond the shadow of a doubt as if doubt was our enemy. We need to believe that we're right about everything, that our theology is in line with what God thinks, that we more or less understand everything, that we have the answer for everything, that we have a handle on God. A handle on God? Good grief. But the hard lesson from the gospel of Jesus and from the story of Naaman is that our deliverance isn't in the rung above us. If anything, it's in the rung below us. Our healing is not in our achievements, even our achievements of faith. It's in our surrender. Our salvation is not in some accomplishing or believing of some great thing. Our salvation, our deliverance, our healing is in a humble acceptance of a God who loved us before we even existed. Before we were even impressive. Before we were even lovable. Before we even stood behind a lectern and professed our faith. The path is downward. In what way, brothers and sisters, is God looking to get your attention from beneath you? And in what way are those beneath you not in any way actually beneath you? Where do we need to be looking for grace and for acceptance and for love? The path is not above, the path is below. Thanks be to God. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, you give us a hard pill to swallow, and yet it's very, very good medicine. Humble us, Lord, in your sight. Show us the path to take. 
people who are the greatest blessings to us. Show us how surrender, rather than grabbing and attaining, is the way to be delivered. We thank you for this very humble way in which you now approach us. You give us literally the simplest of things, the building blocks of human life, and you say that you meet us in these things just as we are. What a treasure, Jesus. We thank you. Amen.